Alrighty then, welcome to the True Well Show. On this, the greatest Tuesday you've had all week. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio today, Matt Dixon. David, it feels like we were just here. So weird. It's been a week. Yes, right? So weird. It's going here fast. Here we are again. Uh, it's like the end of a roll of toilet paper. Yeah, we're right? living in a big loop, right? Like just, It just goes fast. That's all I could say. Well, uh, we've got a pile to cover on the show today. Um, I will go ahead and give you guys just the, the quick insight. Evidently, uh, breaking news, Speaker of the House is no longer Speaker of the House. I, yeah. Yeah. And um, I was thinking about what that means to the market, and probably nothing. Yep. Right? Probably nothing. That's not even a road bump, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, what it could mean is that it did just escalate yep. the potential for... Uh, you know, about 40 some odd days from now, this, you know, can kick two point, probably like can kick 37.0 mm-hmm. of having this discussion about the budget and whether or not we're going to have a government shutdown. And I hate to say it, but I think the probability of that government shutdown just ticked higher. Oh, you think it went higher now? Yeah, I did. Okay. Well, okay. and if I'm just kind of guessing a little bit here, but the context clues suggest to me that with the the current regime like what what made everybody angry on the the extreme right let's just call it that like there's a group that's uh of republicans that is very very like just adamant there there must be budget cuts there must be enhancements to budget security and we must address what what seems to be the unaccountable flow of dollars into ukraine mm-hmm. okay that's the position that they're taking and they they refuse to vote on the package, so McCarthy reached across the aisle and got Democrats to vote for it, and that's how they got the votes to get it over the hurdle, and that opened the door for challenges and other things. And uh, the the Republican ranks uh, clearly there was enough of them to suggest that they didn't like the overreach kind they of. They didn't, yeah. and so I think it's Matt Gates is the one that was the well uh, person that filed the grievance and. Uh, it's really interesting because if if he runs for speaker and was successful at getting the job, he's more or less said he's not going to reach across the aisle, which, you know, even as a, uh, a pretty much a fiscal conservative and a social agnostic where mm-hmm. I sit for the most part, um, you know, it's, so I'm, I'm relatively libertarian, but not fully so. It's it seems like a bad idea to exclude somewhere between 48 and 52 percent of the country. Yeah, right, that does doesn't not identify yeah. with that political affiliation. John, just call me crazy, but like taking roughly half the people and saying I refuse to talk to you or play ball with you <laughs> seems like a bad idea. Yeah. So anyway, we shall see. Um, it <laughs> it, it kind of leaves us in the same boat we've been in with the markets, though, which are down. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this this last. A couple of months have been kind of a rough slide. Well, I think, you know, we prepped a little bit for the show, and I think what you're talking about right now is a good lead-in to, and I don't know, this isn't the official title of the show, but the market might not be telling us the whole story, right? Like, that's the underlying theme. And I think what you just mentioned really ties into that. Yeah, I mean, so... Just for the listener's benefit, give me like a little high level. What's what's going on? Like, what's the backdrop of the market today? Uh, I mean, the markets have been down for the last week, right? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, really, maybe they've been down two for weeks, like two months. Yeah, they, there's pretty pretty consistent size. Certainly, the last five or six weeks, they've been the, the trend has been negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're. I mean, like on the S and P five hundred, right? I think mm-hmm. we're down eight 
almost 9%. Yeah, off oh, of peak. Off of peak. Yeah, I think yeah. we're still positive year to date, but we're off mm-hmm. peak for the year for sure. Right. And most of that's coming in the last six weeks. And it was a really good run, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of 2023, for the most part, we saw this climb higher until it stopped and it's rolled over a little bit. Right. And here's the trick question, and we're going to address some of this today, is was the market really up? Mm-hmm. Right? And I'll let you in on a little secret. Uh, the question is, well, what exactly is the market? That is the biggest question that I think we have to answer today so that our listeners walk away and say, I understand this thing so much better. Yeah. yeah. So first, let's talk about the economy briefly, like economic things that are in play well, so that this has a context. Right? We keep hearing whispers of recession, right? Yep. And those whispers are now kind of conversations. Yep. And so it's not as um, it's not as much of a secret as right. So and remember <laughs> what recession is. Yeah, we're not okay. talking about a depression. Okay, recession is classically defined as two quarters in sequence of negative, negative GDP. GDP. Yeah, growth. Right. So that's a shrinking GDP for two quarters in a row would be gross recession. domestic product. Gross domestic product. Thank there we you. go. Uh, also, keep in mind that. The economy is not the stock market. Nope. Right? They oftentimes are out of sync with each other. Typically, the stock market is considered a leading indicator, meaning it will react before the economy follows suit. Right. But the stock market is only part of the financial market. Are we skipping over GDP? Like, do you want to break that down for listeners that don't know? People are like, well, maybe like, what are they talking about? Well, I mean, the easy version of it is gross domestic product is if you add up all the goods and services that are created Mm -hmm. in the United States. Right? right. So this is our domestic, the the economic output is measured as gross domestic product. There so you go. When the economy is shrinking, that means that the total amount of goods and services being created and otherwise sort of consistently in the shrinking, shrinking for half a year, basically. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, that that's different than the definition of a bear market, which in stocks means a twenty percent correction off of its high water mark. Mm-hmm. We we care about it because. You know, obviously, there are some implications if companies are less profitable that tends to be reflected in a change in stock price. I think that's a good thing that you just pointed out. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's not necessarily connected because the stock market is trying to price the future. Mm hmm. Okay. So it just depends on where in the cycle and how optimistic the market is about the future. Because if the people that are trading the stocks look at this and say, yeah, we might be in a recession right now, but are we going to be in three months? That can shift the way that they're investing. Yes. Now, for a minute, let's also talk about the cost of risk, or another way to say, let's talk about the fixed income market. Mm-hmm. What's the landscape there? Well, we've seen the rate that you can get for loaning out your money go up. Right. That's the easiest way to say it. Yep. So yields are higher mm-hmm. if you're the lender. Right. But that's another way of saying if you're the borrow borrower, it will cost more to borrow money. And everyone felt that pain, right? They've seen right. it in trying to get a mortgage for their home. Right. If or, you want to buy a car, those mm-hmm. interest rates are higher. Right. So yeah, you have to pay more to borrow the money, but you also are getting paid more to loan it out. Right. So we're finally seeing for the first time in really a lot of years. Uh, higher fixed income yields, you're seeing savings accounts mm-hmm. with higher yields. You're seeing CDs with right. higher yield. We're seeing 
bonds with higher yields. But yeah. there is something interesting in the landscape of bonds when you look at bonds that are maturing fairly short term. So like in mm -hmm. the next year or two, bonds that are going to be payback. So these are short term loans compared to loans that are maybe 10 or 20 years out. Right. And we even discussed this topic in our investment committee meeting this morning where all the advisors get together. We look at portfolios and we say, what's working, what's not, what are opportunities. Mm -hmm. You have to look at that space. This isn't a recommendation to go do anything, but you at least have to look and say, is this appropriate? Because things have changed a lot compared to a year ago. Right. And even six months ago, it was much different. The, the interesting thing to me is how we've seen the what's called an inverted yield curve. Right. Mm -hmm. So normally speaking, if you're loaning money out for a little while and expecting to get it back, you wouldn't get a soon, whole lot of interest. Yeah. Because you think, well, if I get paid back sooner then I get my money back to do something else with it. That's less risk than tying it up for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So usually you have to get paid more money if you're going to tie it up for 10 years than if you're going to tie it up for a year. Mm -hmm. But that's well, not been the case. That's really not been the case. Short term rates have been paying more than long term rates. Now, the implication was originally that. Perhaps the economy was just experiencing a rise in rates right now. The Federal Reserve has been um, tightening monetary policy to try to stave off inflation. Mm -hmm. And the hope was that that would be effective and then they would be able to bring rates back down for what they will call a soft economic landing or just a soft landing. Right. And that is the suggestion that the economy isn't going to go into recession. It's just going to slow down. Mm hmm and that inflation comes back under control, and we just proceed from there. And the, that's easier said than done. And some indications are that that could still happen. Some indications are that it may not. Mm -hmm. And that's always going to be the case, is that this, uh, I use a silly illustration, but it's like if you've ever watched a train start from a dead stop, it's not like it just smoothly takes off. The boxcars all kind of herk and jerk back and forth until it's finally under they're all under tension and underway, but that jostling back and forth when everything's getting into motion, the economy is kind of like that too. That each boxcar is moving, and it, or each economic data point is moving at its own pace. So kind of makes get for a around. bumpy ride, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So of course the market's trying to discern what that means, and we're all as advisors and money managers trying to figure out what that means. Uh, but this really does sort of play into. What what we've observed, we talked about in our investment committee, it's something I think um, you guys listening could really benefit from when you when you think how do I assess you know what is working in this market or not, right? Mm -hmm. like, like what are some of the things that maybe the average person isn't paying attention to, and should, right, right. So we're we're going to talk a little bit like like the concept of. The Eclipse Market. Okay? We're going to talk a little bit about something called R-squared. Okay, Now, All that right. sounds nerdy, but it's actually really applicable to even average investor. Like when I say average, like just pretty much anybody that's out there investing in a 401k or anywhere else, you're, you may be interested in this. Okay. okay. So it's some really highly applicable stuff for uh, investors. It's not super specialized. It's, it's pretty general, high level, and yet really, really important to understand this. How are we measuring? And what does it mean? But first... Oh, don't do it. Don't make us take a profit break. Yes. It's too soon. Yeah, it's, it's, it's time. We got to take our first break, but stick around. On the flip side of this thing, we are going to unpack this market, and uh, we're going to look at the numbers behind the numbers. <laughs> 
I like it. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Well on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn, in studio today with me. Matt Dixon. And just a reminder, if you are getting caught up, all of this is going to be available via podcast, so be sure to subscribe. And if you are listening on the podcast, we're super stoked to have you. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube or uh, TikTok or wherever else we find it. First, I'll thank all of the, the team that gets that posted because it's probably not me. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, we're, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit in this next segment about... Oh, the index. Oh, the index. <laughs> uh, because that whisper is uh, often used in our industry, right? Like, yeah. let's talk about these indexes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, I think... I've used this of what's going to be our yardstick of how the economy is working or how the mm -hmm. market's working. And, you know, oh, the index, the phantom index, mm -hmm. the cap weighted index. Let's and then, talk about mutual funds. Yeah. So we're, we're going to, for all of you out there that are still actively investing in mutual funds or are investing, uh, somebody else is investing in mutual funds on your behalf, you probably want to perk up and pay attention here. Why? Because David... I have a feeling is about to talk about R squared and someone's head just rolled. They're like, what is R squared and how does that apply to me? But David's going to show you. He's going to walk you through this process. Well, l let me give you a high level here. Well, let's unpack this for our listeners. R squared, in my mind, it has this order to it, right? So first, I want to explain why cap-weighted indexes are giving a skew to what we may believe is happening to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to we'll go from there to how that skew becomes a benchmark and how that benchmark can be relevant when measuring the performance of what you hold. Mm -hmm. And so this is, uh, I want to explain the why and then give you some tools for how to analyze things inside of your investments. So let, let's start with the concept of a cap weighted index let's pick an index so that we can mm -hmm. we can reference it so there's a bunch but let's use the s p 500 because it's just one that almost everybody's heard of okay if you if you're listening it's 500 largest companies there's actually like 503 or 504 in the index because sometimes there's a little bit of turnover or because there's different share classes of the same company like mm -hmm. google has two share classes right uh, and so they're both in there yeah okay. so yeah. um the s p 500 matt how how much of each of those 500 companies goes in there? Well, all 500 are in there, but if you look at it like a pie chart, right? That's uh -huh. the way I like to try and describe it. Take like the five biggest companies. Apple's one of them. We'll use Apple as an example. So it's an apple pie. I like it. It's an apple pie. <laughs> it's all American. Let's do most this. Most of the slices consist of five companies right like 20 percent of this whole thing is like five different companies you've got apple in there uh microsoft is in there uh google, yeah, google i believe tesla and amazon, amazon. i think those are the big five right mm -hmm. so that makes up about 20 percent of the pie yeah and so and there's 500 stocks David, but five of them represent 20 percent right so what if those five all have a really, really bad day, right? Like a horrible day in the stock market. They all shed 15%. Yeah. So I, I describe this in a funny way, right? Mm -hmm. But you're right. That, that I mean, if they have a bad day, it tends to be that everybody has a bad day. Right. Okay. Because 
there's there is a fair amount of correlation in the index, meaning mm -hmm. that the stocks tend to move like lemmings. They all kind of move at the same time, not always in exactly the same direction. Well, there would be a lot of fear, right? Imagine if those big five all mm -hmm. move down 15 percent. Yeah. So then what would happen is 20 percent of the index has moved down 15 percent. So that's a three percent drop for the entire Tire. index when only five companies went down 15 percent right imagine wiping out three percent of the value of yeah, which is measured in trillions right just right. wipe that away take an eraser and just start erasing yeah. zeros of course we're not going to go into this today but is the market cap truly an accurate assessment of the value of those indexes yeah that's, debatable that is a Really good question. Let's right? start talking theory. Yeah, that that's because remember what it is is a snapshot of the most recent trade for all of those companies. Mm -hmm. And so, assuming that you could sell the entire company for the the last transaction value, which you can, is not yeah a real accurate assessment. It's true of the value, mm -hmm. right? So on uh, paper, we're gonna just say it that way. Yeah, on, on paper, paper. you're erasing zeros, but you yes. still hold the same number of shares. So did you actually really lose that amount of money? Well, yeah, there was, we go. Back to that theory. Yeah, was it accurately valued in the first place? Exactly. Right? That's yeah. that's the issue that we play here. Well, which, and we saw that play out with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like everyone was talking about Facebook stock is down 70 percent this year. Mm -hmm. His value, yeah, his net worth is collapsed down to this many billions. Right. And then fast forward nine months later, and guess what? He's it's back, back in the top five or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's back to almost back to where it was. So Mark. Like, did he actually really lose that money? You know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah. was he selling his shares or did he just hold on and wait nine months? So, yes. Now, all of this to say, we're again, let's we'll we'll try not to go too deep down the rabbit hole of how these companies get valued because we really are there. There's some theoretical stuff that's wonky. But let's instead, um, for a minute, just talk about the markets. If you have 500 companies, yeah, and what you're doing is saying, well, based on the size of that company. I'm going to give a weighting to an index. And in this case, we chose 500 companies, not all of the companies. We just chose the biggest 500. And then we weighted them based on size. And so the five biggest companies got a huge weighting. Mm -hmm. And like the 500th company is barely noticeable. Okay. And this is the equivalent of having like a person sit in front of you in the theater with a really tall hat. Okay. Mm -hmm. You just can't see around the tall hat. Yep. So you don't get to see what's on the screen. So all those little companies sort of get eclipsed by this handful of big companies. And yet we still seem to want to call this representative of the marketplace. Right. And while it is representative uh, based on the valuation of the last trade, it's not really representative of where all the employees are. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not necessarily representative of productive output or any of those things. It's just one of the ways that we've decided to measure. And you're saying basically in a roundabout way that when you're trying to see the performance of these underlying smaller companies, it can get clouded out by the fact that there's so many big companies in the way blocking the view of that small company's right. performance. Yeah. As those five companies go, so tend to be the rest of the I got an interesting stat for you, David. Hit me. So in 2021, the S&P was up just over 28%. Yes. Great year. Yes. Everyone's cheering. If you were to remove those mega stocks, right? The mega, cap, the super mega big caps, ones. yeah, the, the big fang stocks. 
if you were to take those out and then look at the remaining whatever 400 and something companies yeah it's like 480 or something yeah look at the other 480 stocks in the S&P 500 guess what their performance was down 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 12% they lost 12% yeah so you're patting your back saying wow look at my index it's up so like 95% of the stocks in the index declined in 21 but as long as the top 5% went up, the mm-hmm. index was profitable. Right. And so this begs the question, right? So yes. you, ha- as an investor, maybe you're an investor that doesn't have a ton of knowledge about your accounts. Mm-hmm. And you come in and you're like, hey, look at this. I have 10 different portfolios and all of them are in this index. Now, one of them's tracking the S&P 500, and then I've got a mutual fund over here, and it kind of tracks the S&P 500, but it's got some different holdings. So, could Are I, you I, as diversified as you think you are? Well, you're probably diversified, but I suspect uh, I'm going to head you off at the pass. I think I know where I, you're going I'm with this. leading you into something. Yeah. Yes. So what happens here is, first, so you got this this index that we call the market. Now, uh, if you look at mutual funds compared to the S&P 500 over a long period of time, and this is, uh, I just pulled a stat that said over the last 15 years, 92% of mutual funds underperform the S&P 500. You know what? That doesn't actually surprise me as much as it might surprise the listener. Yeah. Well, remember, a lot of mutual funds are bond funds, too. So they're not even tracking. Sure. So it's kind of like, well, you're comparing apples to oranges for a lot of these. So that's not necessarily a fair comparison. Mm -hmm. But Well, there's a lot of rollover, turnover in the people that are managing these funds, right? Because, like, say you're managing a fund and you're doing really, really, really good you might end up leaving that fund to go manage another fund, and then the guy that comes in behind you doesn't do as great of a job. So You're trying to outgame the system. There's that. It's statistically hard because the S&P 500 is well-designed, right? It mm-hmm. basically favors the stocks that are working. Yeah. So it is autom- automatically the stocks that keep growing and getting bigger keep getting a bigger chunk of the action in the index, if you will. Right. So that's a pretty good formula for mm-hmm. long-term growth. But where can that fail well uh, again uh, one more point i know where you're headed Uh, okay i I just can't resist here right they you have not only do you have manager turnover in mutual funds but you also have like a small company fund being compared to a big company fund it's investing in different things Mm -hmm. you will see a lot of those funds actually run out of things to buy Right? They'll run out of small companies, and then they have to change the strategy and start diluting and having less of the stuff that they really loved because they did so well that they got really popular. Everybody runs over there, tries to pile more money in, and the manager runs out of good opportunities, and then the performance suffers. Mm. So you often see some fading because you small companies in particular – just you run out of availability of great small companies. And this is even more so today because the big, big mega caps tend to acquire the small companies, right? Rather than innovating, just mm-hmm. buy the, the innovator and absorb them, right? Like this thing about Microsoft buying OpenAI, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's one of the more recent examples. So all of this to say for investors, it's tough to beat the S&P 500. But a lot of you out there may have mutual funds that are claiming to be different. And this is where I want to give you a heads up. This is the hot tip. Yep. Okay. There's a statistical data point that we use called R squared. Okay. 
you don't know how to really know how have to know how to calculate it, right? But you go on Google and you can find it. It's publicly available. R squared. What it's really telling you is how much of the movement in price for my investment can be explained by its benchmark. So if or the, the S- underlying index, right? Well, so yeah. the benchmark in this case, if it's the S and P five hundred, and you're trying to outperform the S and P five hundred, you want to say, well, how much of the return that I'm getting? Would I have gotten if I just owned the S&P 500? Right. And these, the, the threshold is somewhere above 0. 0.9, because it's up, it's up to one, right? That's the, the so, so your R squared doesn't like, go above one. So if you just invested in the S&P 500 and you're like, what's my R squared? It's, it's gonna be one, one because yes. your performance, like it's, if you were to chart it, yeah. is gonna directly overlap the well, same and line. And actually it will be a tiny bit less than one because all indexes have an operating expense like an That's index true. has this tiny operating that little expense, expense ratio that, that drags it down so you never get the performance of the actual index because mm-hmm. there's these tiny little drag points but what you can see is if i own a mutual fund and the r squared value is really high like mm-hmm. above 0.92 or so then what it's telling you is statistically most of what you're getting can be explained by the index itself. So you're getting that very makes little me a question. Yeah, then then you have to look at the expenses underneath it and say, why would I pay a management expense for that phantom index? If really I'm just buying the S&P 500 but it's kind of packaged different mm-hmm. to, to charge me fees. So if that's the case, you consider whether or not indexing is more appropriate. Now, if the R squared is lower, then you know, you may just have correlated returns but not yeah. necessarily causal returns kind of so, sounds like someone who just grabs something off the shelf puts it in a different box and says here why don't you pay me more yeah. for it that that's one of the things that you're uh, if you're working with a financial professional they should be able to tell you is you know what's the r squared value of your mm-hmm. underlying holdings and are you getting the benefit of your diversification as opposed to simply buying a lower cost option Exactly. Right? So, so that's it. Doesn't mean that it's a guarantee. Like a, a high R squared is neither good nor bad. It's just another piece of evidence for you. But there you have it. So now you know that these indexes are oftentimes skewed and not necessarily indicative of all the companies in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And yet we continue to call them the market. Oh. All right. Okay. With that, I'm looking at the clock. We better grab a break here. Oh, man. Yep. When we come back, we are going to completely change directions here. For those of you getting toward the end of the year and you're starting to align doing some tax planning, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Tips and tricks. Other kind of cool stuff. But uh, we got to take this break. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. Yeah. True Well on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 Matt, we'll go, Matt goes on yeah. rants. Okay, welcome back to the True Well Show. Where, um, I guess you got to catch the video to get the uh, off-screen comments. Where we're like, we got to turn the video off to talk about this one. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you are just joining us, I grab the podcast, but I've got good news for you. Uh, we are going to be uh, shuffling here. We got a new topic. That are we pivoting, cover. David? Absolutely. To uh, tax planning? So generically tax planning, but really today, uh, for those of you out there, we're going to talk a little bit about retirement plans at a, at a kind of a high level. So let's let, just first, let me give you about the retirement plans that we care about today are going to be a combination of sort of 401ks or employer plans, mm-hmm. IRAs, 
and Roth IRAs. Perfect. And, the trifecta. This yep, is the triangle. Yep. And we're going to talk about because basically if you have some kind of retirement plan through work. Now, maybe you work in the public sector. You might have PERS or something like mm -hmm. that. But if you've got PERS, you also have IAP. IAP, which really walks and talks a lot like an IRA. Yep. Okay. The difference being that with PERS, you don't get a lot of investment control. You kind of get the block until what you retire. Right. In which case, the options show up. So, mm -hmm. so imagine for a minute that you are saving over a lifetime and you're investing and you're growing your nest egg. And then it comes time where you're approaching retirement. I'm envisioning this. Yes. Okay? You're approaching retirement and you're going to leave and you're going to make some decisions about do I keep my 401k where it is? Mm -hmm. Do I roll my 401k into a personal IRA where I can control things more? Mm -hmm. Okay. And do I already have a Roth IRA or not? Might I have a Roth 401k? Ooh, the those one are, thing that people exist. don't often know about. Right. So might I have any of those in my cocktail? Mm -hmm. Right. And then how do they all interact with each other? And here's where it gets kind of wonky, right? Mm-hmm. At the age of 73, so I've had these retirement plans for a, a long time. I've been investing and they've been growing. And age 73 comes along. It used to be earlier, but now age 73. And the IRS says, enough already. You've been deferring paying taxes for long enough. We are going to start forcing you to take money out and pay taxes on okay, it. Okay, yeah. If, like, yeah, so you talked about it. If you have a 401k, a traditional 401k. This you, would happen in your IAP account, too. Yeah. It happens in the 401k account. The exception, I think, I think if you're still working and earning an income at 73, I think you have required distributions out, but you can still make contributions to, to mm -hmm. a 401k if you right. have earned income. Yeah. But like IRA is cut off. You can't make more contributions after the, the, the point where you have required distributions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So no more contributions to IRAs after age 73. That all the, for the backdrop here, like if you're going to have to take money out, what, do is, it, what does it yeah. mean? Well, in an ideal world, you'd want to do it in a way that is most advantageous to you, where you pay the least amount of taxes possible. Yeah. So there's sort of a weird gotcha for good investors. Mm -hmm. Okay. The weird gotcha is early on, we're sold on the idea, hey, put money into this retirement plan and you can do it pre-tax because your okay. tax rate is going to be higher when you're working than when you're retired. Unless you have a ton of money in your 401k or your IRA yeah, and then and you, you turn 73 and it's like, hey, congratulations, you've got $3 million but now you have required distribution and it starts somewhere north of 4%. And that means you're taking $120,000 of income out of a $3 million IRA or more. Mm -hmm. And and this is, by the way, this changes. And as every year you get older, it goes up. Right. And so there's a uh, IRS table that, that has a percentage that you take out of your account. Yeah. And so let's, let's keep the math easy though. We're going yep. to take $120,000 out of this account. And I've also got social security. And because I was making a decent living, you know, I probably, you know, if and if I'm married, you know, I'm gonna have somewhere like eighty thousand of social security. Well, whoop de doo, I got two hundred thousand dollars of income now that shows up. And even after taking standard deductions, I'm gonna have hundred and seventy five grand of income. Right. That's gonna throw me somewhere in the twenty two percent federal at current rates and ten percent or you know, nine percent state in Oregon. 
So let's just keep the math easy again. Roughly 30% of my money's got to go to taxes. But let me frame it up another way. Say you retired at 62 and you had a bunch of money in your savings account and your IRA doesn't have a required minimum distribution yet. What might be something that you could do with that IRA in between? Yes. Huh, I, fr I set you up, didn't I? Fine. Just tell him what you want to tell him. I'm like, I got this whole setup, and Matt goes, well, let's talk about Roth conversions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought that's where we were going with it. It's like, let's just talk about Roth conversions. I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm setting the table for like, look, if you have too much money in your uh, traditional IRA, you may be in a higher tax bracket than when mm -hmm. you started. Yeah. So the Roth conversion becomes an interesting tool. The answer is, first off, what the heck is a Roth conversion? And why would I care? The, yeah. So well, Matt, what maybe, the heck is a Roth maybe conversion? Maybe in that situation. Okay. So a Roth conversion is where you're able to convert that money that you have in, say, your IRA, right? And then convert it to a Roth where then it is able to grow without having that amount. Okay, that good, good. Now I got a fun question for our audience. First, explain how a basic traditional IRA functions. Okay, so you put the money in without paying taxes on it. So, so pre-tax money Here I am, goes in. I'm 33 years old, I put my money into an IRA. This is pre-income tax, right? Yeah. That's, we're not there, I mean, there's some other little taxes like social security and stuff, but like right. the pre-income tax, the money goes in mm -hmm. now and you don't pay income tax on right. it. Right, say I put 100,000 in by the age of 33. And then I, well, I'm just saying, like, over I'm like, the course. You can't do that. No, I'm, I'm like, saying, like, from 18 that, to 33. You can I've, put, like, 6,500 bucks in, right? I'd be mean, per year. Unless well, you're okay, I guess I was talking more about a 401k. So you've got your 401k. You've been contributing for 10 years, 12 years, or whatever, and you've got $100,000 in there. This is an okay. example. And then I have put all that money in there, and I go to retire at one point, right? And that money... Um, has grown from a hundred thousand. I've contributed a hundred thousand, and it's grown to say half a million dollars. You've okay. got five hundred thousand in there. When I go to take that money out, right, I'm going to be taxed on that full amount, that full five hundred thousand. Wait, hang on. Now you're confusing me. Okay, I'm trying. All, all, I'm, in, of, I'm fast forwarding you're, you're, to, yeah, yeah, my, he's, to he's the scared. time that I am retired. I'm fast forwarding the okay. clock. So. Money goes in pre-tax. Yes. It grows, and you don't pay taxes while it grows. Right. And then someday when you access it after full retirement age, yes. we're not going to get too cute with the rest of this today, after full retirement age, then you have to pay taxes. Now, mm -hmm. if you wait long enough, they require you to take money out. Like, if you didn't want to take it out when you retired, hey, I got other income, fine. Right. But if you took all of it out all at once, you have to pay all of the taxes at once, and it drives your tax rate up super high. Yep. Right? If you wait until required distribution time and your account's grown big enough, the required distribution may be so big that it drives your tax rate up, right? That's the simple way of saying it. Okay, so we also have the Roth IRA as a concept. We just gave the traditional mm -hmm. IRA that this is the invest before you pay your taxes. It grows tax deferred, so you don't pay taxes on the growth until it comes out later. The Roth walks and talks different. So let's let's explain to our listeners why the Roth is so cool, and then we'll talk about the conversion. Well, after you pay your taxes, you can put money aside into your Roth, and then as that grows, when you go to take it out, you're not having to pay taxes on it. 
yeah, this, I love how, I mean, it, it is that simple. You fund it with money after you paid the taxes, not before. Mm-hmm. It grows the same as a traditional IRA or 401k. Yep. It grows without paying taxes on the growth. Why is this important? IRS really wants you to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And they view it as, look, we either get you on the way in, so you pay taxes and then you invest, or you don't pay taxes and on the way out you pay them. And the Roth is unique because you put money in, the growth normally would be ma- would be taxed mm-hmm. when it comes out. But the Roth IRA, if you have held it for five years in your full retirement age, it's tax-free. Right. Which also means no required distributions because the IRS, if it forced the money out, that's, they don't get taxed. That's a big kicker right there. That's really important for tax planning. Mm-hmm. Now, all of this, we, we tell you this whole story because we want to talk about why you might consider changing from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. I think that goes back to that earlier example of the person that might be in their early 60s and they're not required to take money yet. Yeah. So but if you're this we'll person, you need to stick around after this break mm-hmm. because what we're going to be doing is we're talking specific. That's the cue, Dale. You have to hit the music now. <laughs> that nailed it. Good job. So. When you come back, we are going to talk about, might you be the person that could benefit from converting? And what does that mean? A little bit of how it works and how to get the right information to assess. Because it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. So stick around and we'll figure out if it's for you right after this. I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM at 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Radio Show. Where we're talking about a bunch of IRA stuff. Okay, a bunch of IRA stuff. And, and really the question for our listeners is, uh, is, it, is it appropriate to consider converting a traditional IRA into a Roth IRA? And so we're going to talk a little bit about why you might care about that. And whether or not you should be talking to your advisor, if you don't have an advisor, your CPA, if you don't have a CPA, to us, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, shameless plug there. But anyway, we're the the, the issue here has to do with, and, much- and we're going to talk generically about planning. We're not giving you mm-hmm. specific advice. We're giving you a framework for how these decisions get analyzed. Okay. Th- yeah. You have to look at current versus future tax liabilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a really fancy way of saying how much income do you have in that phase where you have retired and you're taking distributions. Yeah, I mean if let's let's say you retire at 65, okay? Yep. That's pretty traditional age. Medicare shows sure. up, so you decide to retire at 65 and you stop earning an income. So your income effectively goes to zero mm-hmm. and you may defer collecting social security for another five years. You could defer it until age 70. Yep. If you have zero income, your tax obligations just dropped effectively to zero. Yes. Maybe you have a savings account and you could just live off savings. But let's say you have a really big retirement plan and at some point you're going to be required to take money out. Mm-hmm. It might be worth intentionally converting yeah. part of your IRA over a series of years, because when you convert, you pay the taxes. But you really got to look at the tax tables if you're even considering this. Yes. Because if you take too much, 
you just voluntarily blew up your tax liability yeah, yeah. for Yeah, I and mean, we're this is coming from a point of we've seen this happen where people aren't paying attention and they they aren't strategic about the conversion. They just nope, they convert just the whole thing, pay a boatload of taxes, and then they really kind of set themselves back. We don't want to do that. We want no. to be smart and strategic in our plan. Exactly. So the idea would be to look at the tax tables mm-hmm. and say, well, I can use this much before I kick into a higher tax bracket. And if I do that, then it's going to set me up to pay lower taxes in the future. And the money I convert, I convert at a low tax rate. And in the future, I can access it with zero tax. Right. Or if I don't ever use it and it's going to go to heirs, I'm going to die and I'm not going to have it. Somebody else gets it tax free. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what you're doing is you're timing when you pay the taxes to try to find the lowest point at which to pay those taxes. Right. Because if you convert $30,000 in one year, you're not going to be stuck with a ton in taxes. Right. If you're in the 10% tax bracket and you convert 30000 your tax exposure is $3,000. But converting 30000 when you're taxed at 37%, your tax exposure is over 10000 Exactly. So, so you're going, yeah, wait huh? a second here. I think I should be more strategic about how much I pay in tax. Yep. Okay. So that's the point here. And that's what planners, a, a good planner is going you... to look at that and help you discern how much and when and what's the timing of conversion. Ooh. The difference between an asset gatherer and an asset manager. <laughs> I, oh, I love it because we talk about this stuff behind the scenes. Yes. And, all right. So, you know, I've been doing this. I'm in my 24th year, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I, I started in like 1999 in the industry and I'm just baffled that that's true. But um, so. Matt has not would did not start at the same time I did. No. So every now and then I, I I kind of like wring my hands when I'm complaining about something about the industry behind the scenes. Yeah. And one of my complaints is the the asset gatherer is a salesman in planner's clothing. Ooh. Okay. And yeah. what this means is, you know, the the financial industry for years was built on the idea that companies out there will tell in people hey you don't know how to do this but we do and then they shine a flashy object and say look at how cool this is well yeah it's the equivalent of saying you can't trust yourself you need the resources of our big firm with our smart people that are way more talented than you and somebody comes along and they say well i don't even really necessarily know how to do it but i represent this company with all this talent let's work together and you can have access to the talent that I have access to and I'll be the middleman. Hmm. And what they're doing is they're creating a desire through, you know, it's a transaction sale. They just give you the story about, well, this is why they're so smart. This is how they believe in what they're going to do. And this is why you need it too. Mm -hmm. And people kind of go, uh huh. Right. And so, and that's been the historic, that was, that used that's to be a sales model. pitch more than anything. Right. When we get down to the, the root of it, right. That's just a sales pitch. Like, Hey, I've got this really cool set of people and these managers that are going to do a great job for you. Come jump on board. Right. Versus, I mean, make no mistake. This show is an advertisement. Oh, it is. Okay. Like it's, it's, we, we pay to be on this show, but I'm not complaining about that either. Right. But it's a really transparent transaction right like if we're going to work with somebody we're going to show you exactly what's going on Mm -hmm. you know what it costs you know if the benefit is to you or not all that stuff is supposed to be disclosed we don't take everyone because sometimes you're not a good fit for what we're doing right and because we're fiduciaries 
mm-hmm. right? So we have a legal obligation, and frankly, I think we have a moral and ethical obligation to do, put the client's interest ahead of our own and to do what we believe is in their best interest. So there are many times where I've had to say, yeah, that's not, that's not your best interest. We shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and thankfully, you know, this community has been really good to us, and we've been able to grow to a point that the next transaction does not determine our financial yeah. future. Mm-hmm. That's not how this works. The right customers with long-term relationships making good financial decisions that produce good outcomes, right? If, if we produce good outcomes for our customers, they stay customers for a long time. It's We both benefit, yeah. yeah. That's, to me, what's important. And so all of this to get back to, we're not selling Roth conversions. Nope. That's really not what's going on here we're at all. We're just trying we're, to we're like, saying is, educate. Yeah, what if we could keep, or what if you could keep more money in your pocket rather than paying it out to the government by being strategic about the timing of when you pay taxes. Now we're getting something. No one wants to inherently pay more in taxes than they need to, right? Right. So hence the planning stage at the mm-hmm. end of the year is a good time that's to start That's asset about. management. You're managing to the best possible outcome, yeah. or trying to at least. Anyway, if you need help, Please give us a call, 541-375-0898, or check us out at littlejohnfs.com, and we'd love to talk more. But we're out of time for now. So until next time, I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.